everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church, and this episode is part of our Cutting Room Floor series, where Nick expands on his Sunday morning sermons because sometimes 50 minutes just isn't enough. On Sunday, September 29th, Nick talked about imitating Christ with our sexuality and sexual immorality in the sermon, Not Even a Hint. You'll be hearing from Nick and Jill in this episode, which is the first of his expansions on the sermon, because sometimes one podcast episode just isn't enough. You can listen to the original sermon on our sermons podcast or at highpointchurch.org sermons. As always, if you've got a question about what you heard, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, this is Jill Reese, and I'm here with Nick Gibson. Hey. And on Sunday, September 29th, Nick did a sermon called Not Even a Hint on um, Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. Right? Yes. Yes. So um, in that sermon, we Nick talked about um, being imitators of God, but specifically um, the second half uh, you talked about sexual immorality, which is a touchy issue, yes. to put it lightly. Yes, it is discomforting for many people. <laughs> so we're going to talk more about it, actually. Yeah. Um, it's a profound area of ignorance among mm, modern-day mm-hmm. people in general and Christians in particular. Cause, because any issue where people may have already failed, you know, done stuff that's mm-hmm. already wrong, when you talk about it, people tend to take things personally. So they mm-hmm. go, oh, you're saying I'm bad. Or So like, for example, talking about divorce is really difficult because you've got divorced mm-hmm. people in the congregation. And it's very easy for people to feel like you're beating up on them or for people to assume for them that you're beating mm-hmm. up on them. And they take it personally instead of saying, no, 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 let's prevent future divorces mm-hmm. and help people who've been divorced heal. Mm-hmm. And so you have to talk about those things, mm-hmm. even if people could feel hurt. Yeah. So before we get started on that note, if you um, were not there on Sunday and you just are stumbling upon this podcast right now, you can listen to the sermon at our um, sermons podcast or online at highpointchurch.org slash sermons. And Mm -hmm. I want to say that if you are even just hearing the word sexual immorality and wanting to check out to um, stay tuned because I really liked one thing, your tone, Nick, in the sermon was um, that it's you might be wondering, well, what have I've done all these things before? Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean of me now? But the question is really, what will I do now? And so that's, yeah. please, please stay with us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're listening to this, you've grown up in a profoundly mm-hmm. sexually immoral culture and one that not only is sexually immoral, but teaches us to be sexually immoral, celebrates mm-hmm. us when we're sexually immoral. Um, and then pretends all the pain that comes from that mm-hmm. isn't there mm-hmm. buries it blames it on someone else and doesn't take personal responsibility mm-hmm. for all the carnage that it creates mm-hmm. and then people feel very hurt but they feel like should they should almost be happy about being hurt because they were so free and liberated mm-hmm. and um if we understand the biblical doctrine of sexual morality we will see the immense wisdom and love of god in it and the honorability and the mm-hmm. nobility of his understanding of why he's given us the sexual gift. Mm-hmm. And we'll recognize that sex, along with words, which is the other context in yeah. this passage, are so potent mm-hmm. that you have to handle them with the appropriate level of care and mm-hmm. humility. Otherwise, 
they will explode mm-hmm. your face mm-hmm. rather than be a potent power to be used for many goods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's read, I'm going to read the passage that the, um, you preached on Nick and then okay. we can dive in. So this is Ephesians five, one through seven and Nick focused on verse um, one through three verses one through three in the sermon, but we'll read all of it. It says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving for this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Um, And so, Nick, to start off the sermon, you talked about um, just being an imitator of God and how we see um, that, that we see this in the command um, of like to be not to grieve the Holy spirit to um, follow God and um, that Christ has modeled this for us by living a life of love. So do you want to talk any more about that first point? No, I mean, one of the things that I would have loved to have gotten to Mm -hmm. in my sermon and we may not even get to too much right now is God is spirit Jesus the Christ never married mm-hmm. and believed in the sexual immorality mm-hmm. and moralities of the Bible. So we worship a God who's never had sex. Now, the gods having sex was a major theme of the religions of the ancient mm. world. The Christian religion in the Jewish faith that it came out of was basically unique in the history of the world. Probably not perfectly unique, but basically unique in that it worshiped a God who had never had sex Mm -hmm. yet gave sex as a gift and demanded that we use it in a way that imitates him. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think it's fair for people to be like, well then how do you imitate God with your sexuality? If he's the God who has never had sex. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, the simple answer to that is that God is holy. Mm hmm. And you imitate him by using any faculty or part of your being in a way that is holy. Mm-hmm. And in the and holiness in some ways is the proper expression of perfect love, mm-hmm. right? In relationship to all other truths. Mm-hmm. When that's all done beautifully, perfectly, that's holiness, right? So in this passage, it says, and walk in the way of love. Mm-hmm like Jesus who gave himself as a fragrant offering, right? So he died. He, he didn't indulge himself. He did the opposite mm-hmm. of indulging himself. He dies and in dying, not indulging himself, he becomes a fragrant offering. He, he creates a beauty mm-hmm. in his own dying that is for the benefit of anyone who could smell it, right? To God first, he's the first mm-hmm. one who smells the beauty of what Christ has done, but also all of us and everybody around it. Mm-hmm. Similarly to like the fragrance put in an Old Testament sacrifice that mm-hmm. 
the burning of the flesh was overcome by the beauty of the smell of the fragrant incense mm-hmm. that was added to the offering. And so our sexuality, in some ways, we are supposed to burn it to ashes. Now, not entirely, like we're supposed to use it in certain ways, but yeah. in terms of the wanton, immoral, and impure indulgences that we would wish to allow ourselves those must be burned to ashes. Mm-hmm. Those must become a sacrifice that is burned to ashes because we will walk in the way of love. Mm-hmm. And love is not the indulgence of the sexual appetite. Love is committing yourself to the true, long-term, real good of the others you are connected to in mm-hmm. the social fabric for the complete flourishing of the whole community, both now in future generations and forever. Mm-hmm. That's love. And once you understand love that way, Love is almost never going to be like, yeah, you should sexually indulge yourself however you want. Mm-hmm. It's going to be like, look, there's a lot of stuff you're going to want to do for short-term pleasure that you won't do for the f- true good of yourself and others mm-hmm. for generations and eternity and the whole fabric of the good of the community. Mm-hmm. And so sexual morality says, my sexuality will be holy and that it will always work in the way of love. Mm-hmm committed to the true good of others Mm -hmm. and to God's will Mm -hmm. is the shorthand for all that God's will. And it talks about that later in that chapter. Mm -hmm. Don't be foolish, but know what God's will is. Right. And then that's what you do, which for a lot of people is going to include sex, but Mm -hmm. for some people it might not. And Mm -hmm. it certainly isn't going to include whatever you feel like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be, closely regulated by moral and spiritual truth as it must be because mm-hmm. it's explosive. Yeah. You know, I think implicit in what you were saying is that God, so God has never had sex, but God created right, he sex invented it with a very specific purpose that yes. when we walk away from it, it's actually no, no longer loving as you were saying, but it's actually the opposite. Right. And, yeah. and part of the fundamental truth, like, so um, some Christians, Roman Catholics have been the most articulate about this probably in writing. Um, and Ryan Anderson's book on marriage is probably the best where he talks about sex functioning properly within the comprehensive union of mm-hmm. marriage. So a man and a woman give themselves to each other entirely. Their, their finances, their work, mm-hmm. their future, their health, and sickness and health, and, right? And riches and in poverty, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, right? With the receiving of children, seeking to have fertile sex with each other so that you can hospitably embrace a new generation of the human mm-hmm. community, that you would raise them in the stability and godliness of, the, of a godly home so that God could receive what Malachi calls godly offspring, all Mm -hmm. of that is functioning within this union of the two becoming one flesh. Mm -hmm. And the act of becoming one flesh is sex. Mm -hmm. And then that continues throughout this one flesh union. But sex is fundamentally the unity, the unifying of a comprehensive union. Now, once you realize that, and then you look at the sexual culture we live in, the definition has literally been exactly reversed. Yeah. Sex is an act that is for fun. It creates no union. Not mm-hmm. not just not a comprehensive union. It creates no union. You could do that and have not be unified in any other in way. any other way at all. Yeah. It can be utterly temporary and not permanent. Mm-hmm. It is intentionally infertile always, mm-hmm. right? And if it produces a life, we will extinguish that life in the womb, right? And so on, right? Mm-hmm. And... And 
you're supposed to like it that way. You're mm-hmm. supposed to not feel abandoned and used, right? And on and on and on. And all of that's pure fiction. And it's supposed to equal love. And like that is, yeah. in our culture, people sometimes think that is love. But Well, I think more and more people are dissociating sex from love. Yeah, that's true. That's I don't true. see how you can hook up with a one night stand and be like, that's love. That's true. I think they mm-hmm. would just say the two don't have much to do with each other. Yes, you'll have sex with the person you love, mm-hmm. but you might have sex with lots of other people too. Yeah, that's, that's right? a good point. Mm-hmm. Even the romantic notion that love and sex should be united aren't particularly strong, mm-hmm. right? Because it at, there was a point in time where you would expect to at least relate to each other to achieve the emotional storm we call love, the feeling of strong affections mm-hmm. and desiring to bond more deeply and added to your physical affections that would lead you to want to have sex. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, the culture that exists right now, I think that's one reason to have sex. Yeah. But to another see reason if you is just are in love. Maybe right. like so, I think some people, that's a reason to have sex, yeah. but just being around somebody you're attracted to, if they're willing as long as, cause right. The only criteria is consent, mm-hmm. not gender, not attachment, yeah. not future, not fertility, nothing. The only criteria is consent, mm-hmm. which means that the two human beings think that they're what God. Mm. Yeah. Right. So the one criteria they don't own based on God's way God has said to us, mm-hmm. you can't do that. Like sex is not for your consent. Like when everything else is there, it's mm-hmm. absolutely your consent in terms of your abuse of each other. Mm-hmm. But even in first Corinthians seven, it says, look, if you marry somebody, you should give your consent to them. Mm-hmm. You gave your consent to each other when you got married. So you should not deprive each other Depri- in within, within marriage and Christian faith, depriving another person for not good reasons is considered probably as sinful as consenting outside of marriage. So Cause that's also self-indulgent and not self-sacrificially right. loving. Right. Yeah. I think it was Laura Winner. I think she's a scholar at Duke who said about women. She's a woman. Mm-hmm. She said, God tempts us to have, or Satan tempts us to have sex before we get married. And then after we get married, he tempts mm-hmm. us not to. Mm-hmm. Be- and it, it's true because like you get into married life, especially as a woman, I think, because men is like, Satan is never going to succeed in tempting us to not want to have sex. That's just not a winner for destroying men. So I think what happens is Satan tempts the man to be so greedy in his desire to have mm-hmm. as much sex as possible and then tempts the woman not to want sex because she just has other things going on, and right? And so and so, and so doing mm-hmm. dividing the man and the woman mm-hmm. more, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the whole idea that like you have like consent is the golden thing. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm 100% for consent. I don't think anybody should be having sex without giving their consent. Mm-hmm. But the way Christians give consent is by marrying. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, they give their permanent consent. I consent now. I will consent in the future generously and graciously. Not, not literally every time maybe you want you want it, like mm-hmm. to your spouse, but a lot. Mm-hmm. I will seek to, to serve you because what Paul says is your body is just not yours anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's an attitude that modern people would really struggle with. Right. Mm -hmm. So once you begin to lay out even some of the most preliminary Christian concepts about what sexual morality is, it's not just a little different than what we would call worldliness Mm -hmm. or what's going on in our culture. It is literally the exact reversal of not just behavior, but of meaning. The meaning of sex is literally the opposite until a Christian gets that 
there's something in their heart that'll still keep saying, well, but why can't I? Mm -hmm. Well, but why can't I? Well, God is holding back this gift from me. He's kind of mean. Mm -hmm. And when you have feelings like that, you don't get it. Yeah. And every Christian should start thinking that way. The minute you think God is mean, the first thing that should occur to you is there's something I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Because that's always true. Yeah. And that, that means then we're also imitating other people or the world instead of Christ in some way. And so to get back, and it makes sense because in our world and in the people around us, and even in our own minds, we've cheapened sex and we've cheapened love and don't know what they mean anymore. And so we have to get back at imitating Yeah. In 1 Corinthians, the argument Paul makes is the Corinthians say something like, food is for the stomach and the stomachs are for food, right? And and the assumption is sexually, you know, we were made sexual creatures to have sex. So we should Mm -hmm. have sex. And Paul says... Wait, first of all, not everything that's permissible is is beneficial. Mm-hmm. Your your standards are way too low, right? The standard in Ephesians 5 is your life is supposed to be a fragrant offering. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be an imitator of God. The question is not what sex can I have and why can't I? The question is what can I, how can I use my sexuality in the maximally loving way that imitates the holiness of God that really walks in the sacrificial way of love so that my life in its sexuality and in everything else is a fragrant offering to God mm-hmm. first and then to anybody who comes in contact with me. They mm-hmm. smell a beauty and a nobility off of me because of my desire to sacrificially imitate God. That's my goal. Mm-hmm. And if you understand your sexuality, like, well, why can't I? You'll start talking like the Corinthians. Well, why can't I? Well, mm-hmm. why can't I? Well, because you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, he says in chapter six. Mm-hmm. That's why. Mm-hmm. your goal is to be a temple that the Holy Spirit would dwell in because mm-hmm. that's what you are. Mm-hmm. So that enormous reversal has to take place in the mind of the Christian. And it's also the reason why Christians shouldn't tell non-Christians to behave like Christians mm-hmm. because they have no conceptual framework for how it would even make sense. And because it doesn't make sense to them, they just think it's prudery mm-hmm. or fear. And it's not. Yeah. It's we sh- we don't share a philosophy. Yeah, that's really important. We disagree on mm-hmm. the truth. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's really important. Um, so in the second half of your sermon, you talked about um, sexual immorality and what counts as sexual immorality. And so um, you talked about how in Leviticus 18 through 20, there's at least three things that most people notice. Right. Um, and those are? Those are incest is forbidden, homosexual sex is forbidden, mm-hmm. And bestial sex is forbidden. But then there's also a bunch of other categories that we often <laughs> read right. over. Um, and right. so, yeah. And Do you want to go into that a little more? Because the average sexual normative person, you know, a heterosexual mm-hmm. person, will be like, oh, I'm good. Yeah. No incest, got it. No homosexual sex, that's fine with me. I mean, now people get offended for other people. So the average right. modern liberal secular person will say, well, how dare you say gay people can't have sex with each mm-hmm. other that's terrible and that's something we need to talk about right but mm-hmm. that's there it's in the text there's no mm-hmm. getting around it right and then third well there are lots of people who write things to say you can get around yeah. it, but they don't work and then third bestial sex mm-hmm. is wrong right mm-hmm. but so the average person is like oh i'm great but mm-hmm. but you're not great because mm-hmm. a lot of the close relationships that are forbidden are not incestuous yeah they're just gonna create rivalry and they're gonna stink up the community mm-hmm. You just can't be doing that. Mm-hmm. 
right? And there's also, of course, don't give your children as a sacrifice to Molech, which is a command against infanticide, Mm -hmm. which would apply to abortion. So there's a specific rejection of abortion as part of sexual Mm -hmm. morality. So abortion isn't just the extinguishing of a human life, which is the most important thing. Thou shalt not murder. But it's also sexually immoral. It's Mm -hmm. the misuse of your sexuality because part of the proper use of your sexuality is fertility. Mm-hmm. And to give your children, who are a gift of God and the right product of your fertility, to be burned alive to Moloch, to kill the child, is to reject the a foundational and fundamental purpose of your sexuality and therefore your humanity. I mean, people get really offended at First Timothy 2 where it says women will be saved through childbearing. But the most likely meaning of that text is that because eldership has been reserved for men only— you could say, well, then what is the office that only women have that's so fundamentally empowering and so fundamentally full of dignity mm. that it evens out this difference in leadership? And the answer is wombs. Yeah, that's you guys can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's this old, there's a scene in Monty Python and uh, it's the life of Brian. Where's this guy? And he's like, I want to have a baby. And the people are like, you can't have a baby. And he's like, don't you oppress me? It's so funny because it's like basically the transgender yeah. thing now, but like in the seventies, right? Yeah. And or the it, guy says, oh, they says, you know why? The, then the lady who's very sympathetic says, well, why do you want to be a woman, Stan? And he says, I want to have babies. And the other guy says, we can't have babies. You don't have a womb. Where this, where's the baby going to just it? You going to keep it in a box, right? You're doing and a very good job. At right. Your and the guy's like, well, stop, stop your oppressing me. Right. And, but the idea is like, no, like, unless we come up with some very advanced technology, right? Mm -hmm. Women make humans. And the saving in that is that we have an equally important and dignified thing to do, purpose. At least as dignified, right? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so, because of, because any woman can have a child, it's not elite. Mm-hmm. And so modern feministic elitism that says no women should enter the elite roles that men normally occupy. Balancing that with childbearing sounds to them like something very horrific, mm-hmm. but it's also the denial of nature. I mean, yeah. it's just the denial of nature. I mean, that's without women, there aren't humans. And if using your sexuality is, burning a sacrifice to ashes in your life so that it would be a fragrant offering. I can't think of anything more like that than being pregnant and bearing a child and nursing the child. What burns your body to ashes any more than that to produce the fragrant offering of a new life that you're giving to another and nurturing love? Mm -hmm. Nothing. And so Christian women can be very feminist in the sense that all options should be available to women and women should be fully educated as men so that they can get the most out of their minds and their conversation and their interactions and that they all that. Yes. But it has to be a both and affirming the full sexuality of men and women, including fertility and our cultural theology of fertility is abysmal is abysmal. And we even Protestant Christians like us, we like, poke fun at Catholics because they believe like you're not allowed to have birth control. And I don't think that's right, but it's mm-hmm. way more right than some of our theologies, which is like, yeah, 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 yeah. But we'll do whatever we want. Mm-hmm. Were you talking about in the sermon, you were talking about that in the sense of defiling. Is that right? 
like wait like not using like using something for its intended purpose I'm trying to remember because there is a bunch of words yeah, like defiling would be would be not using something for its intended dignity. Okay. I think detestable would be not using it for its teleological or its natural okay. function. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I so in Romans 1 homosexual sex is um it's referred to as um, a, a rejection of the natural relationship, right? So when when like fundamentalist Christians used to say homosexual sex is unnatural, right? The response to that was the the from the gay rights movement was, well, we can find creatures having homosexual relations in nature. Therefore it's natural. And of course that's the fallacy of equivocation. Those two people are saying completely different things. The Christian was saying, because God created us for a purpose, the things we find in our nature have a purpose and should be used according to those purposes or end. That is the telos mm-hmm. is the Greek word, the teleology, like the end purpose of design for which it was made. Right. And so the man is made for the woman and the woman for the man. And so the natural relation between the two is that heterosexual union. Right. Now you could take that a lot further. You could say things like oral sex are unnatural. Mm-hmm. You could say, certainly could say anal sex is unnatural. You could say certain positions are natural and some are unnatural. Some Christians, for example, have taught that only sort of the standard way of having sex, right? Like bodies align sort of, mm-hmm. that that's natural because the bodies are meant to align that way. And if you do other things than that, you're introducing an unnatural thing into sexuality. Well, I don't know that that's right. I certainly don't know that that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that sexuality becomes less personal and it becomes people do those other things usually because they're more exciting for them. And I'm not sure that's the full wholesomeness of the pleasure that is to be sought. I think that, I think that even in a married heterosexual Christian union of permanent consent, right? I still think that there, that, if it's not to be done with greediness and impurity, because remember it, it says in the text we just, you just read, it's not just sexual immorality, it's impurity mm-hmm. and greediness, mm-hmm. right? There is a way to have legal sex, spiritually speaking. Like it's, there's nothing that forbids it that is still impure in its nature and still greedy in its nature. Mm-hmm. And I think Christian couples need to think about that. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, this isn't sexually immoral in the literal sense. But is it pure? Mm -hmm. And listen, I think Christian couples who are married can have impure sex. And I, and I think it bears itself out in their relationship because I think it, I think that both people don't feel honored, Mm. right? Both people don't feel adored it doesn't feel like, you know, like I tell men sometimes you should feel like in what you're doing, it matters that the woman you're doing it with is your wife. If you're doing something in a way where the woman is interchangeable, I don't think that's good. I think that you should be doing it in a way where you're adoring that particular woman. Mm-hmm. And I know that may sound restrictive, but I, if sex is supposed to be bonding, you can't bond with a generic woman or man. You have mm-hmm. to bond with a particular one. Mm-hmm. And doing things in that arrangement that 
move you towards each other personally, I think is fundamental to doing mm-hmm. it well. And so when Paul says in not well, Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews, I tend to think it's Paul, but whoever says he wants the marriage bed kept pure or undefiled. I don't think he's just talking about adultery there. I think he's talking about the way married couples behave in their own bed mm-hmm. and that there are defiling ways to make love in marriage mm-hmm. because defilement is to not use the objects of involvement with appropriate honor. Mm-hmm. And I just, there are certain sexual practices where I frankly, I don't know how you do them with any honor. Right. I remember yeah. listening to a woman who had a talk show in Australia. She was an atheist hooked up with a bunch of guys and was talking about it. And she said, I always know if the guy watches porn and that guy who she was talking to, she's like, well, how do you know? And she, and she goes, because they want to do all kinds of different weird things. Hmm. If I have sex with a guy who doesn't watch porn, he just wants to have sex with me. And it's about me and sex. And this is not within a loving relationship. This is still just hooking up, Mm -hmm. right? But she's like, but guys who watch porn, they want to swing from things and they want to do essentially deviant things, Mm. things that are both defiling and detestable. And the problem Christians had was not to say that homosexual sexual acts are unnatural. It's It's to play the game as though that's all that's unnatural. When... An enormous amount of things we can do with or to each other sexually Mm -hmm. are unnatural. Mm -hmm. And also one of the things that non-Christians don't understand about the Christian philosophy of sexual morality is that Christians believe that the flesh or that is the twisted part of us, Christians believe that's not part of nature per se. Mm -hmm. It is a corruption of nature. So if my flesh, that is the sinful, selfish part of me, wants to do something, the modern secular person just calls that natural. They're like, well, that's natural. It's natural to be, have a same sexual partner for 10 years mm-hmm. and want to do things that are more adventurous. That's just natural. Well, is it natural? Or is that part of the corruption? That because of the corruption that's in you, you can't just have beautiful interpersonal co-worshipping sex. And that be enough. And that be enough and fulfilling over and over again. Mm -hmm. You actually need to, quote, spice it up and pretend you're people you're not or do things that are fairly dishonoring or unnatural Mm -hmm. in order to make it more exciting, Mm -hmm. right? I think that's probably of the flesh. Mm -hmm. I think it's because we age inside and we're broken. And so we don't love the wholesome like we should. Mm -hmm. And we don't find the noble arousing. And so we, we just try to spice Mm -hmm. things up with with whatever we whatever dirt we can get Mm -hmm. in our mouths and i think that that's defiling yeah and and yet we would say it's that's unnatural even though it's coming out from inside of you it's unnatural and they would be like how can you say it's unnatural it's what's inside of me it's in Mm -hmm. my heart so the the christian notion of the duality of our inner lives, that there is the image of God in us that Mm -hmm. is being remade in Christ. And there is the flesh that has to be put to death. Mm -hmm. And that there's the war inside of us between those two things is a concept almost entirely foreign to our non-Christian neighbors. They just look at whatever's inside of them. They're like, that's just me, Mm -hmm. which is very disconcerting when you see the very dark things. And it tends to lead you to being in denial about them. Mm -hmm. You know? And, it reminds me of, again, imitating Christ. We have to make sure that 
Christ is the one defining our categories, things like what is natural, what's our purpose, what's what is self-indulgent or not. So we find those things all throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and New Testament. Yeah. And sometimes these things are really of the soul and mm-hmm. of spiritual maturity. Yeah. So for example, if you don't literally imagine this, but just conceptually imagine a husband and wife, right? They come together for sexual union, right? Now, fundamental to the male-female sexual act is is a deep submission and vulnerability for the woman, just anatomically in every possible way, right? And of, in some way, dominance or assertion with the male, right? And that is tends to be very freeing mm-hmm. and enveloping for a woman who feels safe and also very empowering and masculating for the man who is in this dominant position, okay? However, the man can worship that in two different ways. Yeah. He can worship the willful giving of herself to him in the mutuality of her submission and his initiation, Mm -hmm. or he can sort of sensually worship his dominance over a woman and the, and the feel or the like the spark, it gives his sense of masculinity that he is dominating a woman. Right. Those are like, in some ways, a hair's breadth apart. Mm-hmm. They're fundamentally different spiritualities yeah. within the sexual act itself. One is profoundly bonding. The other is profoundly self-aggrandizing. Well, one is the purpose of sex and one isn't. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, I think if a man has that second thing in his heart when he has sex with his wife, that's sexual immorality. That's mm-hmm. what I think. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, that may be cutting things a little fine or whatever, but if what you really want to be is a sacrifice that has a beautiful mm-hmm. fragrance to God and others, you should care about that mm-hmm. because it's fundamentally caring about your wife mm-hmm. and her of you, you know? So, And that fragrant offer, it will be fragrant to the people who also don't understand it yet because when we're fully um, embracing the pur- God's purpose and his creation, how he created sex, yeah. um, it, even though our unbelieving neighbors might think we're it's weird, <laughs> eventually I think um, in conversation there is something beautiful about it that people, most people will see. Do you think yeah. that's true? They will. I mean, yeah. yeah. And they, the thing is, they're obviously they're not going to see it in your bedroom, but right. they'll see it in the way you adore each other right. outside the bedroom, and because, you're committed to each other, and right yeah. because mm-hmm. the sex is part of a comprehensive right. union. Yeah. And so the way that's all going down is radiating out into everything else which is like just how you talk to each other in the hallway and the wholeness like there's just a wholeness that i think people i mean the sexual revolution has really hurt people whether they acknowledge it or not and so when there's a wholeness yeah yeah it's very evident i think so i totally agree with that yeah so um you had mentioned some places throughout the bible um that talk about sexual immorality or what sexual morality does look like yeah. um what does that look like throughout the old and new testament and and how do we know what it looks like for us for us now yeah yeah so one the bible begins to signal that sexuality is an area of great blessing and can be an area that produces immense misfortune very early and so the first professional sinner lamech in the early chapters of genesis well, the first thing he does, he starts to take revenge, the misuse of mm. power, and he takes two wives. 
the misuse of sex like and greediness right you can see greediness in yeah that. yeah yeah absolutely that greediness yeah. of like mm-hmm. i'll revenge myself mm-hmm. seven times and i'll take these two wives right yeah and so very early on you see even though god allows polygamy under s- certain circumstances later as something he doesn't condone but that he tolerates you can see that it begins with the line of sin and the line of greediness and it, it is founded within the heart of hatred hmm. right and partly because it produces rivalry. And okay, and then as you go through, you've got Abraham, and there's a bunch of sexual immoral stuff with the father of our faith. Mm-hmm. Whether it's fathering a child with his concubine, whether it's offering his wife to another king because he's afraid that king's going to kill him and just take his wife. Um, and so there's a lot of breakdowns of his nobility in seeking to get what he wants sexually, mm-hmm. both in terms of fertility and in terms of protecting himself. And it goes all the way through to the great kings. You have David committing adultery with Bathsheba as like his great sin and all the destruction it creates in his family, which produces in following his unwillingness to deal with Absalom's rape of, or Amnon's rape of Tamar. And then therefore Mm -hmm. the murder of Amnon and all, and then Absalom stealing the throne that all goes back to that one bedroom and that one girl that wasn't treated properly. You know what I'm saying? Mm Mm-hmm. Because of her sexual assault and because it wasn't dealt with, because there was no reign of David Me Too movement, mm-hmm. the entire nation went to war, hmm. right? Because these things work themselves out. That's one of the things that people don't want to yeah. accept is your actions have rippling consequences mm-hmm. in the lives of many, mm-hmm. right? Especially in our sexuality. That feels a very individual, Especially in our sexuality. but it's not. Yeah. And then you get Solomon, the next king who watched his dad take 13 wives. And so he takes a thousand, right? And it literally says his wives take him away from the faith. He ultimately rejects God, mm-hmm. God's plans and what all the blessing, it just gets like torn apart. And all of that is flowing out of sexual immorality. People who think they can play the game and win it. All these people thought, yes, I understand the rules of sexual morality, but I can play this game and win it. And the answer is all through the Bible. No, you can't. And so you get to the book of Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah, the Jewish people come back into the country and they know they're not supposed to marry foreign women. They know it. They know that when you marry foreign people who don't share your faith and they don't even share your language, that your kids are not going to grow up to love God. And Nehemiah sees this. He sees them marrying foreign women. And then he said, it says in Nehemiah that like half of the children produced didn't even speak Hebrew, mm-hmm. much less knew anything about the Hebrew faith. And he says to them, how dare you do this? Do you think you're better than Solomon? Hmm. Right? And the answer is, of course they do. Of course, everybody thinks they're, they're mm-hmm. good enough to not be tainted by their indulgences. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, they lose their identity. <laughs> right. <laughs> they, right. Yeah, they were going to stop being Hebrew people because if they kept right. doing Right. And then the to sins, solve doing, the problem. Yeah they have to send all these women away, which mm-hmm. is catastrophic. Yeah. I mean, most yeah. people read that. They're like, I mean, I feel that way. I read that. I'm like, oh my gosh. That poor woman and ch- ch- those children. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. But it's also true that if you intermarry with another culture, your culture gets lost. And it's true that those, the Hebrew people probably knew that somewhere were some sort of haunted by their identity in a way that they knew they weren't supposed to do that and still chose to do that. Right. So well, and they came all the way back yeah. from Babylon to cre- recreate Israel. 
Mm-hmm. And then they promptly married a bunch of yeah. women that didn't care about God. They didn't, they weren't part of their religion, didn't mm-hmm. even speak their language. Mm-hmm. And then they clearly didn't do the work of getting them to speak their language. I mean, remember, the issue here is not that marrying a woman that wasn't born a Jew is a sin. Mm-hmm. That's not the issue. Um, we know that because of the book of Ruth. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's true. In the book of Ruth, you have a Moabitess, literally one of the main tribes that the, the Jewish people were not supposed to mix with, right? But she just say, says, Naomi, your God will be my God. I will be a part of this people of Israel. She joins herself to Israel. She marries Boaz. She becomes like the great, great, great mother of David, mm-hmm. right? So like clearly God's issue is not interracial marriage or something like that. The, the Torah says in numerous places, anybody who becomes part of your people gets all the rights and responsibilities of being a Jewish person and you treat them like they're a Jew, right? That's not the issue. Mm -hmm. The issue is when you enter into a marriage with another culture, when God has explicitly given you your culture, right? This isn't true of me Mm -hmm. like an Italian. I'm Italian. I married a Jewish woman. God's not going to kill me because like, I was like, well, you don't care enough about being Italian. That's not the issue. Mm -hmm. The issue is the religious faith. Mm-hmm. So as a Christian, I can marry Alexi, even though she's of Jewish descent, if she's a Christian. Mm-hmm. So marrying somebody of Christian faith is That's helpful. Yeah. No Christian is permitted to marry a non-Christian. And therefore, mm-hmm. no Christian should date a non-Christian. Because mm-hmm. dating is a form of courtship, which is designed to figure out who you should come into the comprehensive union mm-hmm. of marriage with. Mm-hmm. Right? And it will lead you away from imitating Christ. Always. Yeah. Do you think you're better than Solomon? Mm-hmm. You must if you think you can do that. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a, those are all very important yeah. things, right? Okay. And then you get, um, so one of the questions people want to ask is this. Okay. If in the Old Testament says that sex outside of marriage is wrong, adultery is wrong, um, homosexual sex is wrong, bestial sex is wrong, abortion is wrong, or all forms of infanticide are wrong. Um, etc. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the Old Testament does not teach that a robust and profound sexual enjoyment between married people is wrong. So Song of Songs, for example, as well as a number of the Proverbs make very clear that a like very robust mm-hmm. relationship of enjoyment between husband and wife is really good. Yeah. And mm-hmm. is full of life mm-hmm. and enjoyment and delight. So that's not an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so people say, is this true in the New Testament? And one of the areas where people have written the most about this is, of course, in the area of homosexual sex. Because obviously people want a biblical justification for at least monogamous homosexual relationships. Mm-hmm. So if you look at some of the church people who are pro-gay, who've worked on this, they will say casual sex, sex that is not part of a comprehensive union is still wrong. But all consensual sex that is part of a comprehensive union, same sex or otherwise, is okay. Right? And they base that on the idea that the word used to reject homosexual sex in the Old Testament is the word for that we translate detestable. Mm-hmm. But eating a bird or eating an animal that was like killed, like roadkill kind of. Mm-hmm. And some other things, that same word detestable is used. Mm-hmm. And so they've said, well, look. In the New Testament, Jesus explicitly says you can eat whatever you want. Hmm. So something that was detestable in the Old Testament is now considered perfectly part of our freedoms. Hmm. So so you just go back to the Old Testament. 
you look at the things called detestable and Jesus has changed what we should detest and shown us what we should affirm. Hmm. And so because that word was used in relationship to homosexual sex, it is no longer detestable so long as it falls under the parameters of a monogamous comprehensive union. Now, like I respect that. Like, I think there are people, I think John Boswell, for example, the person who sort of originated those kind of arguments in the 1980s. I mean, he was a very tortured gay man. Mm. I think he was at Yale and he was a very devout Roman Catholic. He went to mass every single day Mm. and he really, 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 really wanted to serve God. And he, his, his homosexual drives were very profound. And so I think he was trying to sort that out. It is wrong. It is wrong. Mm-hmm. The sexual commandments are treated just absolutely differently by Jesus. Mm-hmm. Jesus explicitly says that the food commandments are made clean. Yeah. But when it comes to the sexual commandments, they're all intensified. They're not mm-hmm. even kept the same. They're intensified all the more. So in Matthew 5, for example, mm-hmm. Jesus says, you've heard it said that is in the Old Testament, it said don't commit adultery. But I tell you that if a man looks at a woman and lusts after her in his heart, He's already committed adultery. That is, he's Mm -hmm. amping it up to lust now. Now, lust is an explicit sin. That lust hasn't even gotten to the point of covetousness where you're actually wanting to take hold of her. You're just rehearsing or fantasizing. Yeah. So so in the Old Testament, the sex was wrong. The covetousness was wrong. And Jesus says, well, what produces the covetousness, right? Like, Well, the sin really starts with the imagining, having, and lusting after. And there's that greediness again. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That greediness. So mm-hmm. to wrap up this first half of this podcast, I think it's important for people to recognize that um, when a New Testament author writes or says sexual immorality, mm-hmm. what are they referring to? They're referring to a set of assumptions that the hearers already have. Mm-hmm. And in the biblical New Testament, that has to be the Jewish sexual codes. Mm-hmm. which are yeah. rooted in Leviticus 18 to 20, but are spread throughout the Bible. Those assumptions of the Jewish people, Jesus affirms everywhere. Mm-hmm. That is what is sexually immoral. Mm-hmm. And that's still sexually immoral. There is no trajectory on it. It is exactly the same as ever. And if you just look around, the fruits are all still the same. Yeah. Yes, we have some treatments for some sexually transmitted diseases. Yes, we can prevent pregnancies or more likely end them, Right. But the carnage that's left behind of like pain and abandonment and hurt and rejection and misuse and dishonoring and defiling and all these mm-hmm. things and rivalries and all the the chaos created by doing whatever you want sexually is all still exactly the same because mm-hmm. it's rooted in human nature and in the nature of human interrelationships. Those have not changed at all. Mm-hmm. Even if you're an atheist, you would believe that because then it would be based on evolutionary timescale. Well, in 2000 years, how much have human beings changed evolutionarily, mm-hmm. even if you're an atheist? Not at all. So if they worked then or meant the same things, they mean the exact same things mm-hmm. now. They can't abrogate, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you see that all through... Um, all through the New Testament. But you, what you also see too, and this is very hard for modern people, is the goal of our sexuality is not our sexual fulfillment. Yeah. It is the fullness mm-hmm. of God among the people of God that we're a part of. It's committing ourselves to the true good of everyone in the increasing concentric circles of our relationships for future generations and forever as a beautiful fragrance to God living in his will. Mm-hmm. If you understand goodness that way then 
yeah, there's going to be a lot of sexual restraint, right? And there's and the way of love will be that you will restrain your sexuality far more, not mm-hmm. far less. Yeah. But if the food commandments were made to set Israel apart in a sort of semi-artificial way that no longer applies because now we're set apart by a, a holistic holiness, mm-hmm. then the food laws can go away. Partly because what sets us apart now is we will actually achieve sexual wholeness, which is what Paul says in that passage. Mm. Among you, it shouldn't even be named sexual immorality. Eat all the shrimp you want. Eat all the pork you want. But they shouldn't even, people shouldn't even be able to rightfully say there's such a thing as adultery among you or fornication among you. Yeah. Right. What's really encouraging to me in that is um, going back to the, your first sermon in this series, when your main point was that we can be made new. Like, implicit in this um, section, starting in chapter four, is that this is possible <laughs> um, right. through repentance and faith. And I was thinking about that as you were talking about people like Abraham and David right. and all these people who um, sinned. Horrific, horrifically yeah. and yeah, we have too and but through repentance and faith we can become a fragrant offering right. and we can imitate christ and we can fulfill what this passage is asking of us yeah. um so i hope that you also feel encouraged in that yeah remember well. the passage says that you are to have not even a hint mm-hmm. or not even have it named among you sexual morality impurity or greediness but the first line says, be imitators of God. And the answer is, well, why? Because you are God's dearly mm-hmm. loved children. Mm-hmm. Dearly loved children. The reason you should take this seriously is because if you're a believer, you're God's dearly loved child. If you're not a believer, if you believe, you will instantly become God's beloved child. Mm-hmm. He already cares for you. He's already done many loving mm-hmm. things for you. He's already invited you to become his, lo- his beloved child. You have to do it though. And the moment you do, the moment he gives you the grace to believe you will become his beloved child. And that's why we say, whatever has happened in the past, I will strive forward in a way mm-hmm. that is a, that where my life will be a fragrant offering in the way of mm-hmm. love and that I will be an imitator of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of other stuff I think we should still cover. So we'll yeah. probably do a part two of this, but <laughs> um, hopefully that's helpful for you right now. Yeah. Thanks guys. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.